Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee. You are welcome to SITREP, your programme from BFBS Radio that brings you all the defence and foreign news you need to know and in the future. Aldershot to Kabul, Devonport to Stanley, here in Broadcasting House. In the next 60 minutes, European missiles, it's all changed on the launch pad. The knives are out this week for the mod budget, but which service gets cut? And will the next government change your service forever? If it does, what about Afghanistan? And in for the long haul or out for the easy option? Osama bin Laden, remember him, says fix the Middle East and maybe we'll stop the war. Dream on, say our experts. It's the holy land, not fairyland. And it's party conference time. What's in it for you or don't the military count at elections? The Foreign Office is getting keen on Cyprus, isn't everyone? And the American military is getting a robot, a robot that can jump over walls. Now... Why would a robot want to do that? Well, to answer, with me in the studio, the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor, John Dickey, Professor Eric Grove from the Centre for Security and uh, War Studies at Salford University. You got it. (laughs) And from the City University here in London, Dr Rosemary Hollis. We ought to uh, explain that was Eric Grove interjecting (laughs) there, whose title gets longer and longer. Maybe you're not getting a pay rise. Actually, shorter and shorter. (laughs) No, they're giving you a pay rise instead. Um, I want to start with this America, the fact that America seems to have shelved its plan for European missiles uh, defence as it exists. The experts claim it's because Iran doesn't have long-range missiles. It's obviously nonsense. It's like all experts are full of nonsense. Uh, it's got a great deal to do with uh, John Dickey, with, to do with President Putin or Prime Minister Putin of Russia, hasn't it? Largely to do with that indeed, uh, Christopher, because... Uh, the Bush plan to uh, surround uh, the, the Russians uh, really uh, got up uh, Putin's nose and he redeployed uh, his missiles to Kaliningrad. And the relationship deteriorated to such an extent that I think you know, President Obama decided that the best way to uh, ease that situation was to bring back uh, the plans uh, for the missile uh, shield. That's right. And at risk, we've got, what, at the end of this year, we've got the uh, the rescheduling of the, um, uh, what's it called? I've forgotten. The, what's it called? The treaty, uh, the anti-ballistic oh, missile treaty, yeah. right? Um, the IMF treaty. And that's got to be done by the end of December. And so this is all part of it, because Putin was saying, no, we're not going to sign anything if you start to t- continue to d- deploy those missiles. So it's political as well as technical. But it was always political, wasn't it? As well as technical. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm very struck by, by all the topics that you want to deal with today. There's, there's one message running through them, mm. which is that the Obama administration is demonstrating on all fronts that it can't do what American administrations could do 10 years ago. They have lost power on all fronts. They're having to bargain more. They're having to manoeuvre more because uh, they can't go in and smash heads together if people don't listen to them. Yeah, except with, um, you know, except with rather large aircraft. Now, um, also, Obama's not a head-smashing type of president. No. Bush was. Yeah. Eric, I want to talk to you, though, because you understand <coughs> this, um, all about the technical side of this. I mean, the, the thing they were going to dis- deploy didn't work much anyway. And so we're into the idea now of new technology, which runs up to 2018. If we listen to the, um, I mean, James Cartwright, General James Cartwright, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs in uh-huh. Washington, he says, look, 
uh, everything's changed. A very interesting and detailed presentation. I mean, I mean, that was what, today about it, exactly half an hour ago. In the last few minutes, I mean, he was making very clear that this does not in any way undermine the United States' commitment to ballistic missile defence. He emphasised the new ways in which they are doing it, putting an, an extra emphasis on putting missiles in ships, whose deployment, of course, doesn't have the same kind of political fallout as having missiles on land. Garden, exactly right. Although also saying that the current missile that they put in ships, the standard missile um, SM3, is going to have a land-based variant too. This, of course, gives them a lot of flexibility. If they want to show they want to protect something, then they can put a land-based missile into it. If put, if doing that means that you alienate the person next door, then you can use the sea-based system. They're introducing new aerial sensors. The impression I got was that the Americans are trying to provide themselves with a system with sufficient flexibility to deal with a tous azimut, an all-directions attack, and not just devoted to trying to sort of shoot down uh, well, Iranian missiles that might or might not exist. OK, in nine years' time, we're going to have the, um, the SM-3, the Standard Missile 3... What is it, the Block 2 version of it? Block 2 version coming up, yeah, yes. Or Batch 2, as the batch Navy two. would say. We're on Block 1A and 1B coming up in yeah, the next year. OK. Um, the most remarkable thing about that, they're going to have three ways of deployment, airborne, shipborne... The missile won't be airborne. No, but the sensors will The be. sensors will be airborne. And with, and with network-enabled capability, or network-centric, as the Americans call it, you can get the information from the sensors to the launchers, be they in ships... Or, or ashore. Or anywhere. Or anywhere, yes. I mean, a, a highly flexible system, and, and it does make a lot of military and military te- uh, technological sense. And the whole of Europe will be covered. It could be covered, yes, if yeah. required. And the other part of it is the, the original idea which they put around was because it, it was to protect Europe against Iranian attacks. The Iranians haven't got the well, sort of kit. to be Chinese, really. As well. Chinese <laughs> to the Iranians? No, As, no, no. No, the main thing was, I mean... Uh, the excuse is being put around that the Iranian capabilities haven't developed as much as, as people expected. I mean, that will have a certain amount of political mileage, or perhaps not. But, but what I think the Americans are moving towards is a much more flexible system, and I think that's, in a sense, good for everyone, and also one that doesn't have this kind of negative political fallout. But it is, I think, uh, an exercise in appeasement of Putin. That's absolutely okay. correct. Um, um, Rosie, Putin is really going to be pleased about this, or is he going to say, no, 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 no. You're still trying to beat us on technology, and when we come to the ABM treaty, Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, renewal and all its protocols, you will still be uh, a a threat to the homeland of Russia. Yes, uh, implicit in that is that Putin's quite enjoying himself standing up to the United States these days, and doesn't seem to be as rocked as uh, Russia should have been by the financial crisis, the economic uh, meltdown around the world has affected Russia too, and the price of oil has dropped. It was he, uh, Putin started strutting his stuff when oil was so sky high in price that uh, they had the, mm. uh, the money rolling in and they could watch the United States bog down in Iraq at the time and... Uh, they could anticipate that they would get bogged down in Afghanistan. And then, of course, we had the whole Georgia fiasco last year. The, 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 I don't think there's any reason to expect Putin to want to cosy up to the United States anymore, to want to lose an opportunity, to manoeuvre, demonstrate, we do only what we want to do, we don't do it because uh, mm. you're pressuring us. But you see, it's interesting, I mean, uh, John Dickey, I remember you saying, like, it was December last year, this is the sort of thing that's going to happen, that that ABM system in Poland, Czechoslovakia, won't be deployed as we know it, and will be a long-term aim once, once Obama gets into power. 
I don't gloat and say I told you so, but in fact that is the explanation of it all. And I think, despite what uh, Dr Holler says, I think Putin is a bit on the back foot at the moment. His military strength has been so weakened it was demonstrated, you know, in, in the Georgia invasion. Um, I, I think he will be quite glad of the breathing space that's coming up. Right, uh, breathing space. Listening on the line, the director of the military program at the RUSI, Michael Codner. Um, Michael, do you, do you get a sense that this whole thing is far more important than we imagined it, it might be? Because it's, it is essentially political, but it's also it can be done because of the technical ambitions that might be realised by 2018. That's quite a complicated question. <laughs> they always are on this programme. Keep the answer simple. <laughs> I, I was going to say that the one or two things I'd say in response to um, uh, uh, to your team, um, uh, one of them is that uh, missile defence has very little to do with protecting anybody against Russia. And although uh, clearly the, Putin sees from the internal point of view within Russia this very differently, um, a major attack by Russian missile missile defense is going to have no capability at all to deal with that. It's designed to deal with small numbers of missiles and small numbers of warheads and uh, from Iran or elsewhere, and that's what it's for. Um, that's the first point I would make. Secondly, the, um, the, the Democrats before Bush came into power uh, were in favor of missile defense because there is a general U.S. consensus, but uh, minimal missile defense. And what we're really doing here, to some extent, is, is uh, dealing with the consensus in the United States. On the one hand, uh, this is the administration, but on the other, recognizing um, that uh, that there are limits, there are political limits, um, there are cost limits too, because Congress will not put up the funding that it would do for missile defence uh, during the previous administration. Are we moving, really, um, in this whole um, anti-ballistic missile, but anti-missile defence system, are we moving from the emphasis on point defence to area defence, or do they still exist side by side? Well, within the concept, they exist side by side. You have point defense um, with theater missiles. You have point defense uh, with the uh, ground-based missiles actually on your home territory. But the the mid-course attack systems and any attack systems you have nearer to where the launchers are, and those are the ones that are furthest away in development, um, of course, can cover a very large area. And indeed, can some of the... Uh, of the point systems, depending on what they are. If we're talking about sea-based systems, they have a pretty big area of of coverage. Uh, But um, to have a high degree of protection against small numbers of missiles, you need uh, all three of these capabilities together, or at least two of the three, in order to have a high level of protection. But you cover a pretty big area. The actual proportion of, of... um, of, of, of defense in each bit of that will vary depending on the combinations of, of capabilities that are spread over them. Do you know, it's interesting, I was, I was listening to uh, General uh, James Cartwright, and if you heard him, the Vice Chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs. I did actually hear him there. Yeah, I mean, what was... I mean, what I found fascinating, he was coming up with the, the whole sort of uh, program which goes from now to 
2011 to 2015 to 2018, which is was just long enough. It's nearly a decade. But right in the middle of that, he said, just remember one thing. The threat will change. And that is the, the key to this whole flexibility which you've just been describing, isn't it? Well, well absolutely. And um, from the European point of view, there's been... Uh, fairly limited interest within Europe. There's a certain amount of NATO activity, etc. And some of the nations, the ones nearer to where the problems might have been in the olden days, Libya, etc., have, have taken the issue more seriously. Um, but the question is, what would be the event which would actually be the tipping point for European nations and ourselves as well? And where to some extent, on the fringes of all of this, um, mm. to, to start to take it very seriously indeed. Um, and and that, that's an interesting scenario to try and build and develop if only I had time to do it. Um, Michael, just just moving on from there um, to what's been going on this week, particularly at, at Westminster and its, um, its other corridors. Uh, <coughs> the politicians are now talking about cuts in a big way. Um, we hear people saying, oh, well, um, the carrier project has to be looked at. I heard George Osborne, the shadow chancellor, saying that Liam Fox, his defence uh, shadow, uh, feels exactly the way. Not necessarily cutting them, but you've got to look at carrier. You've got to look at Trident. You've got to look at A400. Is any of these projects really vulnerable? I, I think they all have to be vulnerable um, in, in the current political climate. Um, uh, and um, there is a very big decision for government of either party to take, which relates very much to um, national status in the world. And, um, the, and, and we are very much on the watershed in that respect. If, uh, if funding isn't sustained, then uh, there could be a step change in where we actually are in the world. And some of these projects relate to that, and others don't quite so much. I mean, A400, there are other options that you can buy. There are penalties if you walk out of uh, a contractual arrangement, particularly where it's international, but there are... Um, like Eurofighter or... Uh, exactly. I mean, Eurofighter, the numbers to some extent were predicated on, at the very beginning, on trying to ensure that Germany was built into the contract as an important partner, the 232, which was the initial number of Eurofighters. Um, but issues such as uh, the carrier relate very much to where we see ourselves in the longer term and what the big strategic choices are that need to be taken. Right. Michael Codner of the RUSA, thank you very much indeed. Um, Eric, Trident. If you start nibbling away at Trident, it's not just economics, is it? it, it having a go at Trident involves... Far more than economics, it's a whole sort of principle of whether you remain a nuclear, strategic nuclear power. Yeah, I mean, there are people doing work on other ways of sort of having a nuclear capability without sort of going the whole hog for at-sea deterrence with three or four Trident submarines. But, I mean, yes, I mean that, that, that would be a fundamental decision. I mean, uh, we'd leave France as the major nuclear power in Europe. And although, does that matter? Well, it has mattered to governments in the past. It's interesting. Yeah, but does when it matter looked, now? Well, um, if, we, if we do away with the carrier too, and France still has a carrier, France will emerge as the leading military power in Europe. French carriers have never worked, though. Uh, but having them is rather different from not having them. 
So you just have them for Navy days and things no, like that? They, no, in fact, Charles de Gaulle... Charles de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle never worked? Charles de Gaulle has worked, actually, eventually. As what? Uh, she took, she's taken a significant role in, in the American Operation Enduring Freedom. She's flown her Rafales and her Etendards over Afghanistan. That hasn't been publicised, of course, because no. it's French. Uh, and, uh, yes... They I mean, had she's to tow her up, though, didn't no, they? No, she's very... She is, she, she is operational. The only problem... Well, not anti-French. The only problem with Charles de Gaulle is, A, she was far too expensive because she was nuclear-powered. Mm. And and, uh, and B, because they could only afford one of her, they only have one. And when they and when she's in refit, they only um, have one. I'm not defending French naval policy. Of course not. But if we, but if we uh, did, in fact, do away with Trident, and of course, there's the other aspect of Trident in the sense that, you know, with a country like Russia, whose armed forces are in such a dreadful state and will depend on nuclear weapons for its clout into the future, not having a deterrent against them is not a world I would like to go into. But then, hopefully, I shall be dead when Trident comes out of service. Oh dear. Oh dear. Well, <laughs> hang on a minute. It, it would be. It would be helpful in the context of this debate about cuts if if it were possible to hypothesise what difference it would make to the standard of living and the well-being of your average British family. Are you saying, if therefore, Britain if you was cut no longer this, a nuclear power? Yeah, would you save any money in the long run? Not in big terms, no. Uh, uh, but hospitals? what's the loss of prestige? What's the loss of um, this Security. access at the top table going to be? Well... Uh, I would argue that in the context of ABM and all the rest of it, and, and we had Michael from Rusi saying that it, Russians aren't the threat anyway. That's not what the ABM mm. is all about. Um, I, I do wonder how much the big power games are structured around the weapon systems that the big powers happen to have. And you only have a voice in the big game, uh, like the nuclear game, and it's not about defence or it's only partly about defence and security and the other half is about who gets to decide how the game is played yeah. that's what the I loss will be wait, 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 wait a minute, John, John Dickey um, do you perhaps get the sense, as I do sort of strolling around Whitehall offices um, that there isn't the stomach for this international role as much as once there was. What I do observe, uh, talking to a lot of the senior politicians, is there's much less enthusiasm for Trident than there was even as short time ago as, uh, as, as two years. Uh, for example, uh, Lord Howe, the former Sir Geoffrey Howe, uh, spoke in the Lords recently uh, questioning uh, the validity of, of more security coming from the uh, revamped Trident, and he wasn't alone in speaking that way. I think a lot of people that will have influential roles in a new government will be very hesitant about uh, signing a cheque. Right. Uh, last point uh, before I want to move on to Afghanistan, um, uh, Rosemary. There is something else here, isn't there? And I, I sort of nagged at it there with John, and that is that uh, it is the role of the United Kingdom, how that is seen uh, in future, that if you said, right, we're not going to have Trident on the same scale, uh, we're not going to have the long-range strategic transport uh, systems, um, we may not have a Eurofighter. We're starting to say, well, you know, what are we going to be doing with our... So what sort of power are we? But yes. this is a very British game. It's been We've played, done it. played since the end of the empire, uh, if not before. Uh, what kind of power is Britain? What kind of clout should it have? And you get various uh, defence ministers uh, mm. suggesting, well, we're, we're, we're more of a power than Canada or Australia. 
Um, but um, we're obviously not a superpower, um, and they're, they're looking for phrases. And I once tried asking a British diplomat why we couldn't be like Sweden, I suggested. Mm. Um, a prosperous, effective player in Europe, but uh, no ambitions to be global. And he couldn't stop spluttering. He, he was unable to comprehend such a question. Right. Maybe we carry too much baggage. And another problem is that we have the Euro fighters because we have to have them financially and we don't have the other stuff which would give us much more leverage. Well, I'll tell you, leave you the last one. I reckon all these defence contracts were, were, were put together very quickly when it looked like the economic system was falling apart and we deliberately bought in, the military deliberately bought in uh, big cancellation clauses. <laughs> we cannot afford to get out of these. I tell you. And, and the carrier has them too. Oh, the carrier has them more than anything else, haven't they? Right, and um, we, we're going to talk about um, vote counting in Afghanistan. The latest of it comes from the EU election observers, and they've said about 1.5 million votes, that's about a quarter of all ballots cast, in the presidential vote in August could be fraudulent. And they've said that 1.1 million of the suspect votes, I mean, they really are good with language, the suspect votes were for Mr. Karzai. Mr. Karzai's people have said, no way, no way. On the line from the Washington, uh, from Washington, the former State Department, uh, State Department advisor, Marvin Weinberg, of the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. Um, I mean, as early as Easter 2008, the EU was warning that the election was almost impossible in West, by Western standards. Now, for example, election officers should have been removed from their local allegiances. This wasn't done, though, was it? So why are we all surprised? Well, I don't know that we're surprised. I think what we what we saw a year, even longer ago, is yes, it was not going to be anything but a flawed election, but that we felt we had no choice. Uh, I remember a number of us raised the question about whether this wasn't understandably going to be a destabilizing event, and everyone said yes, but if we don't have it, uh, have we delegitimized the democratic process? If we have it, we we we'd stand the risk of doing the same. So uh, I think we were, we were caught, the international community, the UN, all of us. Um, when we talk about democracy, we tend, um, I think, publicly in any way, to think in terms of what we might call Western democracy. But perhaps we ought to be thinking far more at local level than some Western model of rule from central government. Yes, I, I, I think there is a recognition of that. Uh, earlier on, there were some who, who saw the potential of a strong central government in Kabul. Uh, uh, obviously, that uh, doesn't fit in with the Afghan experience over the years. Uh, we've come now to lower our expectations. Uh, but what we do need to see is a legitimate government in Kabul. It may not be a government with a great deal of reach. Uh, and you notice that all of the strategies now that are being thought about in terms of building uh, on on successes with the military program, all of these are, are predicated on a local delivery, on working more closely with the people, and a, a, a authorizing role from the center, but really an operational role, which is at the at the local level. What does the United States want out of this now? <laughs> uh, at the at this point, I think the 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 mantra is. You know, we need a stable government in Afghanistan which will prevent the reintroduction 
of al-Qaeda or groups like al-Qaeda uh, into Afghanistan. Uh, there's, there's got to be a great deal, of, I think, uh, emphasis on that because if we're simply focusing on bin Laden and the rest, there really isn't a plausible reason for being there. Uh, Al-Qaeda can work from, uh, from Madrid or Hamburg or wherever, but I think there is a case to be made here that a, uh, a ungoverned space that, would, that it would become a, a, uh, undoubtedly a civil war would, would uh, follow any departure of the international forces anytime soon, that this would have very detrimental effects uh, on, on Pakistan, but in particular leave this country uh, as, we, as we saw it in the 90s, and therefore a, uh, open to uh, a opportunities for international terrorists to run rather freely. You were saying about Pakistan. I mean, what, what, what does this result mean for Pakistan? Uh, I think it has enormous implications for Pakistan. If you're talking about the election results themselves, well, in that narrow sense, they've, they've got some stake in this, in, in that as much as they tend to dislike Karzai and have been suspicious of him and angry at him at times, uh, they are even more suspicious of, say, Dr. Abdullah, who they identify with the, with the northerners, uh, because Pakistan, to the extent that it has influence in Afghanistan, runs through the Pashtun community. And uh, as long as there, is a, a, there are Pashtuns who need uh, Pakistan, that they feel that they're going to have, especially if things fall apart there, a sphere of influence that they can count on. Marvin Weinberg, thank you very much indeed. Um, Rosie, uh, Marvin was talking about... Yeah, it does make you sad, actually. But he's talking about um, the need for Pashtun. Of course, President Karzai is Pashtun. So actually we want, according to what Marvin Weinberg is saying, is that you actually have to have a president who is a Pashtun. And the Pashtun carry what is just just the southern part. So eventually are we looking towards... Uh, splitting Afghanistan in two. Well, this takes us into the human terrain team Mm. territory, doesn't it? Uh, Just how much ethnic sensitivity do we need to have to fix a country once we've invaded it? and or how much do we have to know about that ethnic uh, sensitivity yeah, before but, we've you know, I'm, invaded I, it? I'm conjuring up in my mind all these great, wonderful letters and reports written by servants of the empire 150 years ago describing mm. the local tribes and what you had to do to get along with them and to manipulate them and so on. And and we, we take ourselves so seriously as if as if this game is new. The great British success with Afghanistan, actually, the Second Afghan War, which was something of a success, actually, 1880, 1881. um, And we withdrew and we put in power a very nasty man in many ways called Amur Khan. But he was our nasty man. He was subsidised by the Brits. You're not suggesting that's what we've done now. Well, no, unlike what we've done now, he actually controlled the country. Mm. Now, he acted in a pretty cruel way. This guy's way. just got about five streets in Kabul. Uh, well, yes, but this chap controlled the country. He had an extended secret police. He was the Saddam Hussein of his day, but he was our Saddam Hussein, if you see what I mean. Well, we and had he one of those called country. Saddam Hussein. Well, exactly right. And he was in the pay of the British. He kept the Russians out. He balanced the, the two sides. But, of course, he ruled in a way which, if any modern Afghan leader tried to do it, he would be denounced from the house doors, possibly rightly. So here is the great paradox. 
you, you can only seem to rule Afghanistan, and the record is pretty clear. You try reforms, you emancipate women, you get chucked out. I mean, the Afghans are a deeply conservative people. They respect violence. And unfortunately, the only way you can run the country, it would seem, looking historically, is in a way which we in the West would find profoundly undemocratic. There is the paradox. How do we get out of it? I agree with Rosie. It's very sad indeed. John, tell me something. Why don't... I certainly don't hear it. Why don't we hear on television, radio, etc., our leaders, our political leaders, talking in this way, with this understanding? Because, you know, they must have it. They've been briefed until it's coming out of their ear balls. Well, we've had the one phrase from the Foreign Secretary, David Miliband, uh, we won't accept any whitewash. But apart from the interesting um, historical allusions... They're faced with a much more direct problem than that. They have to decide now whether you have a rerun of the election. And they have to decide, too, whether Karzai's claim to have three million-plus votes is a credible uh, way to allow him to have another term, because are you going to allow British soldiers to continue to sort of prop up a regime that is corrupt through and through? I think... The other side of the, the coin is that if you have a, a runoff, you are delaying the process until May because of the weather making it impossible during the, the winter season there to hold elections. But perhaps uh, the compromise is to have an interim government that gets both sides involved in some way and will hold the fort until the beginning of next year. OK. Um, Rosie, I, I mean, thinking that... I was saying a politician has got other things to do sometimes. I mean, the one thing they've got to do is either own up that they're not going to try and do anything about the Middle East, by which we mean the Holy Land, and that we've more or less given up. Um, or, like Senator George Mitchell, the, the American special envoy, who I think has got another meeting tomorrow in, uh, in Jerusalem. He's trying very hard. There's something very interesting happening here because uh, of the key players, you've got the Americans and the Europeans for whom the goal is a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That and means that Israel state and Palestinian state. Correct. Yes. And the Palestinian state will be in at least parts of the West Bank and ideally linked to Gaza Strip. Right. That particular state would not accommodate more than a minority of Palestinians in the immediate vicinity. Never mind... That is the preferred solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Preferred by whom? By the Europeans and the Americans. Right. The Israelis and Palestinians this year, by this time, are not so sure, A, that it's the solution, and B, that it's going to come about this time, it having not come about every time it was promised before or something similar was promised before. Mm. So they have plans B. Well, what are those plans be? Well, the uh, Israeli approach of Netanyahu at the moment is... That's the Prime Minister. Yes. is um, And he's relatively hardline. He's been Prime Minister before, and uh, the Clinton administration had great difficulty getting him to see things their way. In those days, uh, he's a master at using a peace process and a negotiating process as a way of deflecting attention from establishing facts on the ground which are irreversible. That's the mode in which he's proceeding now. The Palestinian leadership, at least in the West Bank, their plan B is if the international community proves incapable of delivering them a state, 
And by the way, the international community, the US and the EU, are training their police and their security forces, and they're becoming very effective on the ground in Palestinian cities. Not in Gaza. Uh, Gaza mm. is left aside as a quite appalling blot on the global landscape in ethical as well as in humanitarian terms. But the plan B of the Palestinians in the West Bank is probably to abandon Gaza, their brothers and sisters in Gaza, um, and go for consolidation in the West Bank so that at least if they don't have a state, they will have a presence and they will not remove themselves to enable the building of a larger Jewish state, they will, in effect, be putting down a marker for a binational okay, state. OK, Rosie, just two questions. One, so what? Why does it matter if we get a solution The, the Foreign that? Office is saying it matters because they think the problem of al-Qaeda terrorism, they think the problem of radicalization across the Arab and Muslim world is going to be even worse if there is no Palestinian state. Right, John, uh, and I'll come back to your second question in a minute. John, um, this week we had another tape, supposedly Osama bin Laden, but that doesn't actually matter. It was put out in his name. And it said, look, if you can fix the Middle East, we'll back off in Afghanistan. Now, A, um, why bother to believe them? But secondly, I mean, it, it can't be fixed, can it? And therefore, it's not going to happen. That's what if, the Foreign Office thinks. I, I disagree entirely. I mean, well, the Foreign Office, no government can afford to examine a problem and say there's no solution to it, just as you can't look at uh, Zimbabwe or Cyprus and say we can't solve them. There has to be a continued determination. Uh, one has to accept that uh, a two-state solution is the only outcome. Otherwise, you begin to fragment the whole system. OK, back to the second question, Rosie. I'm sorry, Eric, I'm leaving you out of this for the moment, but that's all right. We'll come to you in a minute. I agree with the Foreign Office for once, actually. Cool. Crikey, that's a relief. Um, uh, Rosie, here we are. Unless the Israelis sort out the question of building more settlements in the occupied territories of, of the Holy Land, and unless something is done about the future and, 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 and who lives in Jerusalem, there ain't no settlement. Uh, no resolution of the conflict. It, look, the number of settlers is expanded in the West Bank has expanded since 1992 from 100,000 to 400,000. Whether you have a few more families or not in each of the existing settlement blocks is not the be-all and end-all of the process. Uh, the tragedy is that the Obama administration has allowed itself to become caught up in a bargaining Mm. Uh, a bargaining drama with the Israeli leadership. And the Israelis are really playing tough. They not only said, well, maybe, maybe we'll have a temporary freeze on settlement expansion, but we rule out any notion of including East Jerusalem in occupied territory terms. Mm. And what's more, by the way, we're going ahead with a whole other bunch of new housing units in the well, settlements. Last week, I mean, I heard uh, Barak, the defence minister, gave permits for 435 new buildings. And the 2,500 buildings under construction in the land seized 
1967 are continuing. So okay. I, I, don't, I, I don't blame Obama for so, drawing so I, a line. I think, I think in, in strategic terms, what the Europeans and the Americans, especially mm. General Jones mm. on yeah. the ground, is trying to do, is trying to build the Palestinian state from the inside out and confront the, uh, the Netanyahu administration in Israel at some point with we don't care whether you want to bargain about settlements or not. This state is going to happen and uh, they're going to have to change the momentum, but it's going to be such a hard fight. Okay, can I just quickly just double check if we don't get a solution in the Middle East by which we mean uh, Palestine and, uh, and Israel if we don't get a solution what are the consequences? Nothing uh, shifts with Al-Qaeda, the Gulf states get upset, etc., or continue to be upset. What's the consequence? I, I think there's also a knock-on effect across the Muslim population of Europe because they have become attached to the Palestinian plight, especially the Palestinians in Gaza, as iconic, as representative of the way Muslims, brown people, are dispensable in Western circles. Right, OK. Gracious, we are really late. It's 36 minutes past the hour. Uh, you're listening to SITREP on BFBS Radio with me, Christopher Lee, still with me in the studio. Uh, the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor, um, John Dickey, Professor Eric Grove from Salford University and from the City University here in London, Dr Rosemary Hollis, still to come. Quite a lot, including a robot that jumps over walls. Why would a robot want to jump over a wall? But, um, by the way, you can listen again to SITREP whenever you want to or podcast by going to bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Can we talk about Iran? Anyone want to talk about Iran? Uh, John, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a big meeting, a conference uh, on October the 1st, at the end of this month then, between Iran and the so-called P5 plus 1 group. What is a P5 plus 1? It's not the robot, is it? No, no, it's quite different. It's a standard negotiating group that uh, haven't met since last year because of Iran's refusal to meet any of the conditions. And but they, Iran's saying that we'd like to meet again. Uh, initially, they said they wouldn't want to discuss uh, nuclear matters. They want to discuss everything else but. But at last, they've come round to some of it. And you've got... Uh, France, Britain, uh, China, Russia, United States, plus Germany, got to sit down with Javier Solana, the um, foreign affairs spokesman of the EU, in Turkey on the 1st of October. Whether they get very far, I doubt, but they've got at least a chance to reopen the dialogue. Um, Hillary Clinton, United States Secretary of State, um, their foreign minister was saying yesterday in Washington, um, that Iran must, a quote here, must answer head-on concerns about its nuclear program at that meeting. Well, that's only natural because the uh, final session of Mohammed El Baradai as director of IATA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, set out all the shortcomings of the Iranians in uh, meeting the requirements put before them and on coming clean on their enrichment program. And we, he's been succeeded by a rather a softly, softly uh, Japanese... Uh, was, who was his number two, wasn't he? His number two, uh, Amano. Um, he, he was on the... Uh, he was the director as well. So I think he'll get a little um, time to play himself in and won't be as forceful as El Baradai, but uh, at least a dialogue is starting again. Um, Rosemary, tell me... Is when Israel sort of, or we read that Israel's hinting that it may may decide to bomb 
Iran's nuclear well, they do facilities. Well, they they, 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 they they aim to let people know that that is their intention. If Iran acquires weapon capability, nuclear weapon capability, they think they will have to act. Now, there's a Won't they do it just before they get weapon well, they capability? Well, they've the anyway. Yes. What do you think? I mean, will you tell well, me I, one... I, I, I'm increasingly convinced that they're not just doing this in order to make the Americans do more uh, and uh, work harder at the diplomacy. That's part of what they're doing. But I think, uh, especially the way opinion is in Israel at the moment, they're feeling increasingly beleaguered. It, it may not be credible on the outside, but they feel beleaguered over the Palestinian issue, over Hezbollah, over um, just unloved and uh, the, the subject of endless prejudice. And uh, in those circumstances, they reckon that if they don't do it, nobody else will, and they're on their own, and they have to do it. Mm. Eric, um, is this the only way of stopping them? Or do <clears throat> we think that sanctions might work or diplomatic uh, relations might work? But I'm still not entirely clear what the fundamental aim of the uranium programme is, whether it's to have bombs or not, or just the nuclear fuel cycle and the capacity to have bombs. I mean, I don't think that's yet clear. Do we know that? Anybody? Do we know that? I mean, because... I I think that's the best best guess of what they're up to. The option. The option. They want the nuclear option rather than the capability because they they recognise, a bit like the Israelis in a funny kind of way, that if you are open about having a capability, you're going to create more problems than you solve. Remember, Israel is one of the world's major nuclear powers. Mm-hmm. They've got more bombs than we have. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and, you know, and, 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 and even they have not been open about it. There have been a few errors here and there, but ev- everyone knows they have it. But they haven't been open about it. They're not going to be the first to introduce nuclear weapons into the Middle East because if you announce you've got that, cap- that capability, then all bets are off and all hell... It's interesting, isn't it, that, uh, John, in in your area of diplomacy, uh, once you've got the whiff of uh, nuclear weapons, North Korea is a perfect example, Pakistan most certainly was, then everybody starts treating you with greater respect and they start talking to you. It is a a status symbol, no doubt about it. And also, from an Iranian point of view, it's a matter of national pride. Why should they be limited in their aspirations for a status by not having uh, the, the club key. Uh, they see other countries with it. Why shouldn't they? So um, it's not just a question of, of, of defence or, or um, power. It's a question of pride. Yeah. So staying in the area, what's going on, um, Rosemary, in Iraq? I mean, we have um, we have the guy in charge there, the American general, Ray Odiana, saying, ah, you know, you mustn't forget that we're still here. Well, I mean, with 110,000 or whatever it is, 130,000 troops, you can hardly forget. And he said it's still a corrupt place in many, in many areas. There are still bombs going off. Is anybody forgetting they're still there? I think they would wish to. I think they'd like to. Right. I, I think it's, uh, it's too much for the Obama administration to have to defend its position in Iraq and we can't walk away from this and it may take longer than we thought and it won't be as nice as we hoped and uh, it, it, it won't be stable for a very long time and uh, as soon as we support the democratically elected government we get stick from the Sunni Arab regimes around the region and... Uh, so it's a regional problem as well yet again? Very definitely a regional problem and uh, I think some interesting analysis about what the Obama administration 
should ideally do with Iran when they get to the talks is involve the regional players as well. So and say to Iran, look, come in on this, because after all, they could no, actually... No, no, no. Involve... The 6 plus 2 formula that uh, we was was once in place with Afghanistan. All the neighbours plus superpowers or yeah. whatever. Um, you do similarly in the case of Iran and Iraq. Yeah. Um, and you involve the well, Arab It hasn't regimes. worked in Afghanistan. No, this was pre the invasion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're going back in. No, I mean with, with Iraq. It's 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 got to be done with real um, commitment to the idea that the neighbours do have a say, that the neighbours can have a part in the solution, and especially if you involve all of them, they begin to kind of cancel out each other's worst uh, motives. Okay. And also suspicion. So why, John? Would you tell me is uh, Iraq? Uh, sending uh, militia, troops, police up onto the Syrian border at the moment. Uh, <coughs> that doesn't sound like friendly relations. No, because it's uh, had a great deal of trouble on that border with people coming over and causing all sorts of problems for them. It's only natural that they should decide that they must stiffen that, that line. They've been recalled, um, having their, their ambassadors back, haven't they? Indeed, yes. Which is uh, a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a gesture policy. It doesn't really uh, change things very much, but it just shows the irritation, discontent, annoyance of the the way the sinners have been behaving. Yeah. Can I, can I just quickly, um, uh, Rosemary, or anybody really, um, do we remember uh, Montada al-Saidi, the shoe thrower of Baghdad? Mm-hmm. I see he's out. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And he wasn't treated very well when he was in. No. I mean, mm-hmm. this was his last December when mm-hmm. he, he was an absolute hero. But, I mean, he's had all sorts of things, such as uh, in offers of marriage, I mean, I mean Rosemary, tell me, why is he such a hero? I mean, he was, a, he, he was, he was quite fun at the time, but why is he such a hero? Uh, he claims, actually, that uh, he, he expected to possibly die as a result of... They would take, shoot him. The, uh, it, they would shoot him on the spot, yeah. or uh, it could be uh, an offence worthy of the death penalty, or whatever it was. Uh, he saw it as an opportunity to... He said that this man came expecting mm. this to be all sweetness and smiles and so on, mm. and he'd trashed my country. Yeah. Uh, he'd he'd su- caused every family to live in fear and loss, and uh, it it wasn't cause for celebration. That's basically what he was saying. Yeah. On the other hand, he's not been universally acclaimed for what he did. Quite a large number of his own profession of journalism think it is despicable for any journalist to go along to a press conference and do anything but take notes. And ask for the copy of the menu. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. yes, and uh, I wonder whether they're Have still going to say that after you've had the President of the United States addressing both houses of Congress and somebody had the effrontery yeah. to shout, you lie, yeah. at him. I mean... <laughs> and then uh, ex-President Jimmy Carter to say it's because he's black. I mean, that is getting, mm-hmm. that's twisting your whole idealism around. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say, we've got to move on now because I want to talk about the General Assembly with Rob Watson. But, I mean, uh, John, I remember at the time that happened, um, and you were saying he expected to die. I thought at the time, President Bush's close protection are absolutely lousy because I would have thought somebody hurling anything that had blown his head off. In Iraq. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed, and it wasn't just one shoe. I mean, it was a volley. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, two size tens and he still got away yeah. with it. Okay, he's out in nine months. Um, 
Let's talk about the General Assembly uh, with Rob Watson, uh, who was a rather distinguished BBC United Nations correspondent. Um, And now, Rob, you are really tracking the British political um, system for the next year because of running up to the elections. Overseas service, UK political correspondent. Tell me about the United Nations. That's far more interesting. I mean, why have we got this General Assembly? Why is it important now? It's not about being a distinguished correspondent, Christopher. It'll do. It'll do. (laughs) I certainly had lots of fun. Uh, But the the General Assembly happens every year, and uh, it's called a general debate, although why on earth they call it a debate, I don't know. There's about as much debate involved as when I tell my five-year-old daughter it's time to get to bed. It's just not that kind of an affair. But, uh, you know, essentially for two weeks you get... uh, Every country, every member state of the United Nations represented normally at the very highest level, sort of president, prime minister, foreign minister kind of level, and they all come to the United Nations and spend two weeks giving speeches. But in many ways, although there can be some some speeches that go down in history, change things, uh, signal a change in direction, the real stuff goes on behind the scenes in in the little meetings that they have around New York City. Right. Uh, big issues for those meetings at the moment? Well, I, I mean, I guess you wouldn't be surprised to hear me say that it's all the sort of stuff that's in the BBC headlines, really. I, I mean, I think Iran I would certainly pick out. I would certainly pick out the, the future in Afghanistan and more broadly in South Asia with, with India as well, relations with Russia. Uh, and, and I guess, of course, it never goes away at Middle East peace. Um, Africa used to be every time. Africa no longer is. But Zimbabwe... It's not. I, I can't imagine that it'll be a huge, huge ones in the uh, in the kind of meetings that I'm talking about. And if I kind of paint a picture for you, normally the the United States delegation camps out at the Waldorf Hotel, and you see these endless streams of limousines going there uh, for bilateral and sometimes multilateral meetings. And you know, my my money would be that it's that it's all about Afghanistan, the Middle East, and Iran. Yeah. Um... Stay with us for the moment. John Dickey, interesting meeting. Was it this week with the EU delegation to see your friend Robert Gabriel Mugabe? He's not my friend. No, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, um, for the first time for seven years, uh, an external delegation went to see Mugabe just after President Zuma, the newly elected president of South Africa, had gone along and, and talked to Mugabe and tried to make him more accommodating to the power sharing agreement. But However much Mugabe uh, tried to say that uh, sanctions weren't working and that were harming the people of Zimbabwe and it was all Britain's fault because uh, their economy was uh, undermined by the way the British behaved, the EU weren't taken in by that and they laid it down that until there was more respect for the rule of law, uh, more respect for the power-sharing agreement, for example... Mugabe hasn't even sworn in Roy Bennett, who is the Minister for Agriculture, who was jailed by Mugabe and had to be poised out by the pressure of Morgan Swangerai, his uh, Prime Minister. I mean, uh, farms are still being burned. Um, The attacks on the press go on every day. So uh, it was made clear that until he respects these (coughs) obligations, there will be no great uh, movement to lift sanctions or increase the aid. Although Britain still gives something like 40 million to uh, good causes in in Zimbabwe. Mm. Rob Watson, there is an example, isn't it, of uh, something which doesn't have that international interest, i.e. the delegates, but really does um, concern 
if not the consciousness of 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 the rest of Africa, um, but the, certainly in the surrounding states. Absolutely, but but I've got to say, if um, if if consciousness is something that you're looking for, or you know, concern about doing the right thing, this is going to sound horribly cynical. It just doesn't ooze that at the United Nations. I mean, it it just it just doesn't work that way. And I, I remember the you know when I was first there that I was sort of somewhat disillusioned or rather surprised. I obviously became a lot more cynical over the years i mean by and large if you're talking about a sensitive issue like zimbabwe i mean by and large you know the the, the african nations at the un would, would just run away from the problem as as far as they possibly could what about cyprus well again you know there's there's, <laughs> there's like a list of, of things which they tick off at this time of the year at the general assembly the the old chestnuts and uh Certainly the UN puts its back into a bit of an effort in Cyprus from time to time. And I remember, remember my old friend Sir David Hannay, sorry, now Lord Hannay, you know, doing his bit. But, you know, it'll be there or thereabouts, but just not, just not one of the big issues. John, Alexander Downer, he thinks he might be able to get a deal here. I wouldn't say that, but he certainly thinks the time has come to push for one. He came to see Miliband, the foreign secretary, the other day, and both agreed that the first round was painstaking in the sense of far too many pains were taken to <laughs> delineate uh, the, the difficulties ahead on the four key issues of um, constitution, territory, property, property, by that I mean Greek Cypriots wanting to regain property mm. in the north, and security by security, I mean the guarantees that uh, would follow any settlement. And uh, they want a real push now, and I think there will be an effort made. There's a, a new round beginning today in Cyprus, and uh, Dmitry Christofias and Mehmed Ali Tadat, the northern Cypriot leader, will start again to hopefully um, progress towards some sort of game. The difficulty is that the real key to the, the whole problem lies outside the island. It lies in Turkey. If Turkey's accession uh, bid is blocked, I don't think you're going to get a Cyprus okay. agreement. 35 years after yes. it all started. Um, right, Rob, um, this new uh, thing of yours uh, following the British political system, just right in time for the, uh, the Lib Dems meeting in Bournemouth, the Tories in Manchester, Labour in Brighton, I don't know which one you fancy best, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, tell me, are big issues, global issues, defence issues, are, do they figure in the agendas, do you think? I should begin by saying, Christopher, that although uh, you know, I'm certainly getting paid by the BBC to, to make sure I keep and across us. all these political developments, I, um, my, my addiction to defence and security issues is, is not going to go away, so I'll be watching that on, on, you know, pretty actively. Um, you, you know, I, I don't think, for, for what it's worth... Uh, I, you know, this election looks to me like being decided by a sort of, I guess, a kind of almost a good old-fashioned British, very domestic election about taxing and and spending and, and probably not much else. I mean, I know this is going to come as a terrible disappointment to my employers at the BBC World Service, who would, who would love that it was really about, you know, how Britain saw the rest of the world and that there would be a radically different approach under the, the Conservatives and that we'll be talking about Afghanistan, multiculturalism and Islamic extremism. But, but frankly, I, I just don't think it's going to come down to that. OK, Rob Watson, thank you very much. And good luck at Westminster. It's a good club anyway. Um, I just want to nip to um, the MOD's welfare conference today uh, that's been going on, I think, finished about 20 minutes ago. Um, BFBS's Patrick Eade was there, uh, and you're now here. Uh, 
What was the idea, Patrick? Christopher, it was basically the MOD Welfare Conference uh, in which people gather to discuss uh, the main issues and what's been achieved in the last year. It was attended. Uh, there was a ministerial address by Kevin Jones. Who's he? He is the MP and the Under Secretary of State for Defence and Minister for Veterans. Oh, right. And, and he uh, was talking uh, in general terms about many of the issues uh, in front of us, including the service personnel command paper and looking at what it means for service families in particular for children children's education schooling a family's perspective what is it like when you when you move from overseas back to the uk the transfer of schools for your children and transfer of schools and skills on posting ensuring that the needs of children are recognized and, and uh, there is a place when a family is posted with, with guidance to uh, the local authorities with, with uh, perhaps access to special educational needs for your child. Some of the difficulties so that local authorities still have to understand the, the concept of families that move around uh, overseas, uh, different methods, perhaps sometimes different courses and curriculums in schools, what it's like when you come back uh, to the UK uh, trying to get back in a doctor or a dentist perhaps, uh, you know, an NHS waiting list, keeping your place on it whilst you're temporarily uh, in Cyprus or Germany right. or Gibraltar for a couple of years. Patrick, were you encouraged by anything you heard? Um, I think the general feeling, I was talking to the three family federations, they, they said that awareness has improved um, and, and people are more minded to, to help service families, but there's still a long way to go. Um, perhaps when people on a local level think, well, you know, what is the big deal? Okay, you've moved into this area in Norfolk, your dad's with the Royal Air Force, but so what? Uh, it's that kind of thing. Uh, a debt that the nation owes to those that serve, I think, was, was one of those points that came up uh, over and over again, and, and how to get across. Some fascinating discussions, Christopher, about operational welfare and, and decompression, the need for it and how it is achieved basically uh, how to treat soldiers well and take care of them uh, and, and the material support that is in place when they are on ops and the pastoral support that is needed through a number of agencies, be it the chain of commands, uh, service charities, the chaplains, uh, support lines, uh, SAFA, the Royal British Legion, that sort of thing. Right. Um, Patrick, thank you very much indeed. Um, John, I mean, in your day in the Army, you didn't have all this, did you? Uh, not a great deal of welfare, no. I think you were meant to look after yourself. There wasn't any Keep your head down. There wasn't any counselling for those of us who survived D-Day. We were just meant to get on with it. But, <laughs> okay. um, Listen, I'm, not, I'm not against it now. I mean, it's very important that Headley Court, for example, in Surrey, I mean, they do a marvellous job with uh, injured service. A lot of charitable, there. you see. Mm. Listen, our most important story of the week, as far as I could work out, I've been reading about something called the Precision Urban Hopper. Anybody? The, it's the robot. It is the <coughs> robot, the robot we've been waiting for. Did you know this robot, the Precision Urban Hopper robot? What's that? PERB. <laughs> yes, Perb. it's not a good acronym. It is not a good acronym if you get the letters wrong. Uh, it can leap 25-foot walls. It's got a piston-actuated leg to launch it over obstacles such as 25. Why would a robot want to go over a 25-foot well, wall? This is part of the general robotization, taking the humans out the of The Americans warfare. are buying it for the, the army. The Americans are buying it. I mean, the alternative is actually to give the human soldier an exoskeleton, which will allow him to jump over the wall. 
you know, sort of a, a suit of armour, you might say, mm. powered, which can... I mean, these have been experimented mm. with and certainly been conceptualised. It'd be so, very good for burglars, wouldn't it? Well, it, it could be, yes. I mean, <laughs> Not much good for Afghanistan. They don't have too many 25-foot walls there to get over. Yes. I That's suspect it was more with Baghdad and, uh, in mind. Um, yeah, I mean, this, there is or a trend, there, the is a trend home. there is a trend yeah. taking place at all levels in modern military operations, oh. land, sea and air, yes. to take the human being out. You can't call it unmanned anymore. Well, it's un- uninhabited. Exactly. And this is going to be an increasing trend in the century. Listen, we've got 40 seconds. Far more important, Rosemary, uh, John, Eric, if you had a robot, what would you want that robot to do? Come on. Replace Trident. Trident is already a robot. Okay. Oh, so, okay, John. Any uh, idea? I'm going to mow my lawn. I'd save my gardener doing so much work. Have you got and your 25 foot wall? You got moss on the top. <laughs> Eric, seriously, what would you have a robot do? Mm. Type my articles and books and book reviews. Couldn't, couldn't on my orders it, without me getting a repetitive strain. I tell you, it couldn't but help. It couldn't but help. Who was the uh, Who was the robot in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? He was lovely. Yes, Marvin the paranoid android. Right. You have to look after that. Talk of paranoia. We're going. That's it for this week. My mm-hmm. thanks to John Dickey, Rosemary Hollis, and Eric Grove. Uh, we'll be back same time next week. I'm Christopher Lee. Guess what? Mary's still in the hut. <laughs>